want to invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 1. You can remain seated and let's uh, read this text. It's a little lengthy, so you'll appreciate the fact that you're not standing, but I hope your heart is standing in awe of the Lord and in reverence to His Word. Acts 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You know, Luke is uh, given to much detail, is he not? He's, uh, of course, a physician. He wrote not only Luke's gospel, but volume 2 is Acts, and he's given to detail of which we've just seen. Now, more detail in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, He burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And Psalm 109, verse 8, Let another take his office. So one of the men who had so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must be become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Wow. What detail we have from Luke. And the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in our passage, we have the description and the behavior of what was going on in the early church prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit. As I was reading through some of the commentators and common, uh, commentaries, some people just kind of brush this to the side and think, you know, this is kind of unnecessary filler. Like some of you think about my sermons sometimes. You just get to the good stuff, Right? Well, Acts 2 is the good stuff. So let's just get to the good stuff and forget about all this unnecessary filler. Well, I want to remind you that 
you would make a critical mistake if you skip 12 through 26. Because in 12 through 26, we see what's going on in the life of the church. And it would be easy to say, you know what? Matthias never heard of that dude. Right? We're not going to hear about him after this time. So why is this important? Well, it's strategic and it's important. The church is facing Pentecost. The disciples are looking toward Pentecost. The apostles are looking toward Pentecost. They're preparing themselves by prayer. They're seeking the mind of the Lord. And God begins to work through His Word. And He begins to work through the leadership of the apostles to further prepare the church for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, the apostles will end that preparation by choosing from among them another to take Judas' place. So the title of the sermon is Preparation for Pentecost. Okay, That's objectively what's happening here. But what I want you to learn from this is, what, is how can we be instructed by listening to the way they operated as an early church in its embryonic stages. We need to learn this as a church. So point number one. You ready? Christ is at work in his church. That's what we see in verses 12 through 20, and that's what we see in our churches today. God is at work. We take that for granted, but that's what's going on in the text. So, notice the Lord's instruction. Remember back in verse 4? Wait in Jerusalem. Well, what are they doing while they're waiting? There would have been some 10 or more days if they're waiting. Well, strategically, about 10 days. And the Bible says that the Mount of Olives is a Sabbath day's journey. That doesn't mean they're traveling uh, an entire Saturday. It means that you get allotted to you under the law not to travel more than a Sabbath day journey on Saturday. And it happened to be six-tenths of a mile. So they leave the place where the ascension took place, and they're traveling to this upper room. Now Luke records that in chapter 24, verse 29... Uh, again, and he was, he's recording it again in Acts 1-4 about the fact that they're waiting. And most believe they return to the upper room. Now, this is, there's a good chance this is where the Last Supper took place. So let your wheels start turning. If you know your scripture and know the Bible, it's highly likely that many of the post-resurrected appearances of the King, the Lord Jesus, took place in this upper room. It's also likely that this place was owned by John Mark's mother. It was a place that they joined together. Now just think about this charged atmosphere. Think about the events that took place while they were sitting in this upper room. Well, they came back to the upper room after the crucifixion and the burial. Think about how low they were at that time. But think about the exhilaration when Mary ran down the dusty road crying. Peter, come see where he lay. For I've seen the Master outside the tomb, and Jesus has risen today. It went from the depths of despair in this upper room to the exhilarating heights. And so that's the upper room. This is where they're going to. And we see already that this church is characterized by obedience. Do we need some of that in our church? Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And they're obeying the Lord's command, and they're waiting. Second, they come to the upper room as a body. You know, in the final analysis, when we stand before the King of glory, we will stand or fall based upon our commitment and trust in Jesus Christ or lack of it, right? So in that sense, your redemption is very personable, 
It is very personal and individual. However, when Christ Jesus established his church, though he saved individuals one at a time, every person he ever brought to himself, he placed in the body, the church. Now, I know some of you are thinking I'm meddling now and not preaching. But there's a reason that God shows us over and over and over that no one's saved in isolation and left to their own. They're saved by grace through faith and plugged immediately into the body of Christ. There is no such thing as believing in Jesus and not belonging to a body. It's kind of like the scenario of I'm uh, out with my charcoal and I've got that pile and I light it and it's, it's burning. But let's say in 30 minutes or so, uh, all of them are white hot and I pick one out and I move it to the side. In a matter of 10 minutes, the white hot turns to cold. And you don't realize, folks, when you walk away from the church of the living God, the body that God has plugged you into, you're going to, come, you're going to become just like one of those coals. You have no encouragement. You have no accountability. You have no praying community. So, uh, yeah, that's bootleg preaching. I understand that. Let's move on. The fact is, at this point, we have a, they're a body, okay? There's a list of apostles. Do you notice something about this list? It's not like Luke 6. There's not 12 there's 11. How many of you noticed that? Wake up up there. Y'all, y'all awake? Okay. Yes, there, there were 12 in Luke 6, but now Judas is missing. It's interesting that Luke will take the time to name all of them, and he does this because of the critical nature of the fact that we don't have 11 anymore. We need 12. There's a reason for this. Absolutely critical. Verse 14 says that all these... With one accord, not only were devoting themselves, were not only together in obedience as a body of believers, but they're putting themselves together in unity and they're praying. These all with one mind, and here's the Greek, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Remember when the Lord cleansed the temple? He ran the guys out of the temple. What did he say about his temple or about his house? It shall be a house of not commercialism, but prayer, Matthew 21, 13. So the church, during the very first week of its existence, was unified together in prayer. And Luke does not tell us what they're play, praying about, but there was plenty to pray about. Notice that word, steadfast. They were steadfast in their praying. They were busily engaged in prayer. They were persevering in prayer. It's where we get the terminology, prevailing prayer is what you see going on. So, if you came up on this band of believers in the first century, there's a good chance they were either going to be preaching or praying. Sounds like a church to me, right? If you came up on this band, preaching or praying, note the unity. They had one purpose. It's interesting at this point that the prayer meetings were going on with a few other people. They're in unity, and notice this. Just don't skip over it too quickly. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You notice the special emphasis upon women? Now, what are we told today by Bible critics? That the Bible is racist and sexist, right? Do you know that Jesus Christ, the King, accorded women great dignity? Don't listen to the lie of this world. Don't listen to the feministic, egalitarian garbage that's out in this world. That's not what the Bible presents at all. 
If you remember, it was Luke that accorded women more dignity and more ink in his writing than any other gospel writer. Luke 8 reminds us that it was women who were kind of secretly taking care of Jesus, even financially during his ministry. Luke reminds us that it was women that had the boldness and courage to go back to the tomb to anoint his body for burial. Right? It was also the women who were the very first ones to herald the resurrected Lord. And in our day, with all the biblical critics saying that the Bible is sexist and racist, they just haven't read their Bible. And after the resurrection, he sends forth courageous women to be the heralds of the resurrected Lord. So women were involved in this particular prayer meeting. Also, there is special emphasis given to Mary. wonder why that's the case. Well, she also receives more ink by Luke than any other gospel writer. And then he mentions his brothers. Do you notice that little expression, brothers, presents a major problem for the Catholic view of the perpetual virginity of Mary. If Jesus had brothers and Mary had those brothers, and that means Mary could not have been a perpetual virgin. Did y'all see that? Y'all didn't know that was in there, did you? Right? But there it is, brothers. So we also see that Mary here is a member of the first church. She is not only a member of the first church, she knows that Jesus Christ is not only her biological son, but he is her king and redeemer. Check this out. Mary is no co-redemptrix at all. She is not divine. She is not holy. She needs Jesus just like you need Jesus. All right? And she's praying for the church, and she is praying to her Lord. Y'all get that? And so these are... The brothers that came from Joseph. Remember, John 7 tells us that his brothers didn't even believe in him. As a matter of fact, they laughed at him a few times when he claimed to be the Messiah. Yet in 1 Corinthians 15, we get the glorious news that James was one that saw him and believed in him after his resurrection appearance. So the obedience that we see, the unity that we see, the praying that we see, the commonality... And the promise of the Spirit was taking place. And, and they were beginning to understand this. And God was going to pour out His Spirit. So, but notice this. Even the, even the promise of the Spirit did not render prayer superfluous and meaningless. But on the contrary, it was only the promises of God that warranted the prayer to begin with. Y'all see how critical that is? Do you know that when you pray, folks, you're praying because of the promises of God? You're not praying to get the promises of God. They're already yours. And so they already know the promise has been given, but yet they're still praying. They're still praying, knowing it. Now think about the anticipation, the excitement in this upper room as they're praying and anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that they could go forth as witnesses. We see God working in His church. And we want to see all this in our church, right? Obedience and prayer and unity to get knowing a little bit of theological reflection is not bad for you either. You can't be a Beetle Bailey your whole life, right? You got to know what you believe, and so that is good for us. Now, here's another aspect of the Lord working in the church the scriptures are being fulfilled in their very midst. Notice that Peter stands up. Somebody had to take the leadership, right? And why is Peter taking the leadership? And we get nervous about this too. When Jesus said, Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. If it wasn't for Catholic dogma, 
it would have never entered our mind that Peter could be the first pope. Because he wasn't and he's not. Okay? But Peter would, in essence, hold the keys to the kingdom. Peter would, in essence, be the minister to the Gentiles. He would, in essence, stand that day to take leadership position. Why? Because Jesus told him, I'm going to do this through you. You're going to be the one that takes that leadership, that mantle, and you're going to stand. And so he stands up as the representative on that day. Remember, Acts 1 through 12 is going to be mainly about Peter. 13 through 28 is going to be about Paul. And so he's, in essence, given the keys of the kingdom, representative as with the apostles. And again, uh, we do our best to dismantle this. But folks, it's pretty clear from the scripture that Peter is going to be the one who takes the leadership, not as a pope at all, but as a man of God, saved by grace through faith, who failed many times, but the Lord Jesus was going to use him with the keys of the kingdom to preach the gospel. He's exercising the use of the keys of the kingdom. You have them too. It's the gospel of the king inside of you that you witness to others. Now he stands. There are 120 people present. Now there are more than 100 disciples, 120 disciples, right? But there are more, because we know that 500 witnessed him. Let's consider that the majority of those were disciples. But there's 120 in the upper room. There is a difference between a disciple and an apostle. The term disciple means a student or a learner. In other words, a disciple follows his discipline. And the one he's following is the king, the Lord Jesus. The apostle is a commissioned ambassador uh, by the king or a ruler And his designated authority is to speak for the one who is in power. Okay? So that's what an apostle is. His word was the word of the king. So before the king left the planet, he commissioned 12 emissaries as ambassadors to speak his word with authority. You ever heard people say something like, you know what, I like Jesus. I like Jesus. But I can't stomach Paul. Anybody ever heard anybody say that out in the world? You know, Paul sounds like a male chauvinist. I mean, I, I like Jesus because, you know, he always talks about love and everything, but I can't stomach Paul. Did you know, folks, that when you read the Bible, it's not what Jesus wrote. It is only what was written about him by the apostles. I ought to get at least one amen to that, right? You do understand if you reject what they wrote about him, you're rejecting him. Hello? Right? If you reject what was said about him by the apostles, the one sent by him, then you are in essence rejecting what Jesus Christ said. So he stands up and he says, you know, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And this was concerning Judas. Folks, please hear me. Please hear the power of the word of God. Immediately, Peter's not about theatrics. He's not about marketing the church. He is about the truth of the Scripture. And the first thing on his mind after Jesus ascends into heaven, the first thing he says is, let's get to the book. Let's get to the Bible. And here's what the Bible says. It must, notice that, folks, it must be fulfilled. I think it's safe to say that there were some other dynamics going in the room, right, during this prayer meeting. They've been discussing the Scriptures. It it had been fascinating to have been a fly on the wall and listen to their conversations. But Peter would later say that no epistle, uh, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. 
So he's given us the word. He's very specific. The scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And because he was numbered among them, and he had a share in this ministry. Now, have you ever considered, ever stopped to consider how the disciples would have felt after they were betrayed by Judas? Do you know, all the way up to the Last Supper, all the way up to that day, many of them said, Lord, is it I? You know, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Just think about this for a moment. Think about the depth of someone walking with you for three and a half years as a disciple, one of the brothers, and at that moment, he's going to betray Jesus and turn them, turn him over to the very enemies of God. Now, it must have been deflating and devastating. It was, in fact, parallel to Ahithophel's betrayal of David. Now, in verses 18 and 19, we got, we've got some background of Judas. What is the issue? I know I'm skipping through, but for the sake of your mind, you know, the mind can only comprehend what the seat can endure, right? <laughs> for the sake of your seat, I'm going to help you a little bit, but think about the background of Judas. Now, we don't ever hear about this property, Hakleldama. We don't ever hear about this field of blood, but when you get here, there's some property. There's some money involved. Of course, we think about the 30 pieces of silver. But we know that he takes that money and basically walks into the temple and chunks it in there. Why? Because to him, that's blood money. He doesn't want it on his hands. But he doesn't really feel remorse or true. Re- he doesn't feel true repentance. He just wants to get rid of the money. Well, here's, the, here's what really happens, of course. reading You know, we know this. That they, the priests take the money that Judas throws into the temple. They purchase the field with it. And he becomes, Judas that is, becomes the indirect uh, acquirer of this field. So Matthew 27.5 tells us that Judas, of course, went out and hanged himself. Our text mentions the mode of his death. It says that he fell long and his guts fell out. The text could read like this, and having become swollen, I hate to make you queasy, his guts burst. And again, I think Luke gives us information for the readers because it's important to him. He goes out and hangs himself, and in the course of the decomposition of his body, he explodes, and his entrails falls into this field bought by blood money. Does that make sense? Y'all got that? Should I explain that once again? No, I won't do that. Okay. So it was given a specific name to commemorate the horrific deed that took place there. How would you like to have that kind of name after the field that your body decomposed in? Mm. At this point, Peter is going to talk about two psalms. You see it? May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. May his camp become desolate is 69.25. Psalm 69, verse 25. Okay? Let another take his office is Psalm 109, verse 8. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you read Psalm 69, you can see that that is a messianic messianic psalm. There are many things that you can read out of Psalm 69 that can make you think about Jesus. I'm telling you that in layman terms, okay? But the fact is, Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 talks about Jesus, okay? Well, when you get to Psalm 109... You're going to be straining at a gnat to see anything in there about Jesus, okay? So how is it that Peter is going to have the audacity or the wherewithal to take this event? Now think about this, folks. David said these psalms some 
seven, eight, nine hundred years, a thousand years maybe, before this time frame. How is it that Peter is going to be able to put together Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8 with this particular event taking place? Isn't that amazing? Because that's exactly what he's doing. He is saying that those scriptures find their ultimate fulfillment right here on the day of, right before the day of Pentecost. Amazing. Now, Psalm 109 is actually an imprecatory psalm. You know what that means? David was praying, kill my enemies. Right? That's what an imprecatory psalm is. It's David saying, God, do something against my enemies who are against me. But ultimately, those enemies were against the Lord. Ultimately, those enemies were against the Christ. So David, in those prayers, prays like this. Now, Peter is clear that the Scripture had to be fulfilled in reference to Judas. And then he quotes these two psalms. Psalm 69.25. Okay? He does this because David is a type of Christ. David's enemies are a type of Christ's enemies. Are y'all tracking with me? David's traitors point forward to the traitor, the greater traitor... Of the greater Son of God, that being the traitor Judas, and the one trait that he betrayed would have been Christ. So, this one described in 69 Psalms is considered the righteous sufferer, who ultimately points not to David, but to Jesus Christ, who is the quintessential righteous sufferer. It's no problem for Peter to see Christ as the one and the fulfillment of this particular Psalm. And the ultimate betrayer was not Ahithophel, but who? Say it. Judas, right? So when we get to Psalm 109, verse 8, it is pointing again to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, and the traitor, Judas. So how in the world could Peter quote Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 and know to do this in regard to Acts chapter 1? You might know the answer to that. Well, obviously, we could say the Holy Spirit, right? But how about the fact that the Lord Jesus in Matthew in Luke 24, 25, you had the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're coming out of Jerusalem, and they're confused, and Jesus comes alongside of them and starts to walk, and they don't recognize him. Y'all know that story? Have you read your Bible, right? Y'all know that story? And after they were enlightened, or, or prior to the fact that they began to understand who he was, the Bible says he opened the Scriptures, and beginning with Moses, y'all listening, and all the prophets, he began to explain to them how he's the fulfillment of it all. So I'm going to tell you where Peter got this info from Jesus himself. The Lord of glory gave him this information. And this information was given to him, of course, and he knew that on this particular day that something had to be done about the vacant office. The real traitor was Judas. The one that was betrayed was not David, but the Son of God. And all of that comes from the Old Testament. Isn't that good? It comes. It's, it's fulfillment. Now, God is at work in his church. That's the first point. Here's the second one. It's going to be shorter, so take a deep breath and go... The church is prepared for Pentecost. Now, that brings us to verses 21 through 23, which is about apostolic requirements and the candidates. And Peter makes this conclusion. Based on the Word of God, somebody had to take Judas's place. Is that a pretty good conclusion? Uh, let another take his office, Psalm 109.8. So that has to take place. What are the requirements? 
It must be someone who accompanied them in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke 10, if you remember that, Jesus didn't appoint 12, but he appointed 70. Remember that? And they went out and they witnessed as evangelists. And they come back and say, man, I'm not believing this, but even the demons are subject to our witness. And Jesus said to them, you better not rejoice that demons are subject to, to your teaching. You better rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, there's a difference between those 120, those 70. There's no question that probably some of those 70 were in the upper room. But when we talk about these 12, we're talking about something that is different. We're talking about the need to replace an apostle which was different than a witness or a disciple. There's a difference here. So, he gives us time frame in the text. Did you see it? Between the baptism of John the Baptist and the ascension. So that would have spanned some three and a half years. The person must be a witness of the resurrection. It would have been foundational that this person witnesses the resurrected Lord. But that's not it. That's not not the end of the story. He also had to testify to others about the resurrected Lord. So here are the qualifications for an apostle. He has to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. That means visibly saw the resurrected Christ, and he had to also be witness for the resurrected Christ. That's the requirement for the apostleship. Do we have any apostles today? Don't embarrass yourself. All right. Do we have any apostles today? The answer to that is absolutely no. You don't have apostles today, no matter what they name their churches. There are no modern day apostles. Can anyone meet these requirements having seen visibly the resurrected Lord? And I'm not talking about a dream that Benny Hinn has either. I read one time in a book where he, felt, he said that every morning Jesus puts his arm around him as he shaves. I can promise you if the king puts his arm around you, you won't be shaving. You will be on your face before the Almighty, just like John, as a dead man. Before the king of glory. So the fact of the matter is. Why is this important at this particular time? Why is it awaiting Pentecost? Why is it that Luke understands through the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of scripture. That this is, this is important. Right? Some people say well. They just missed it. Because Paul was going to be the next apostle. So the early church just missed it. They were wrong in laying it on Matthias. What do you think about that? Baloney. No, they're not wrong. They're dead right in what they were going to do. Paul will even say later that I was born out of due time. Right? So, there's this need for it. There's, there's a need. In many ways, Pentecost would fulfill God's promise to ancient Israel. Here we go, right? And it will usher in the people of God into a new era. Therefore, the gap created by Judas must be filled. The leadership of the true Israel. Now listen, folks. Not everybody that's born nationally a Jew is going to be in this new family. It's going to be tribes and tongues of every language across the world. Not all of Israel, Paul says in Romans 9-11, through is Israel. The new Israel are those that trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, repent of their sin, and only have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Okay? So this is what's going on. 
They knew that as Israel, as the Israel, the true Israel of God, they could not enter Pentecost and experiment experience of fulfillment with 11. They had to have 12. It was 12. God chose 12 tribes, right? They could no more enter Pentecost with 11 than the 12 tribes could have entered the promised land with 11. Y'all listening? You're under, we're, we're translating Scripture with Scripture today, not religious opinion. And so the fact is, God chose 12 tribes. Christ chose 12 apostles. The 12 represented the fullness of the Israel of God. Now, that brings us to two candidates, right? Uh, don't you love this? It's kind of funny. I mean, when I read this, I'm thinking, the dude with three names ought to win, right? I mean, check this out. Uh, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice. I mean, Joseph called Son of the Sabbath, who was also called Justice. I mean, the, name, the guy with three names has got to win, right? And then Matthias. But they have a dilemma. They have two men that meet the criteria, right? And in verses 24 through 26, we see how Israel is prepared for Pentecost. Here's the church. They are praying. They're on the brink of the new age, the messianic kingdom. Remember the title? The kingdom conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, then they pray, God, you are the knower of the hearts of men. They're praying. And of course, I think this prayer is addressed to the Son of God. The reference to Lord is used in the Bible, 99% of the time, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saying this, you chose the 11, now you choose the next one. Right? God, only you know the hearts of people. Judas sold you into slavery, sold you into betrayal with 30 pieces of silver. The 12th apostle could not, 12 apostles could not be voted on by the show of hands in Baptist life. Right? You can't leave this up to a group of Baptists. To show their hands of who they're going to vote for. It could not be done by secret ballot. Don't you love those? And verse 26 seems kind of crazy to us. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The end was the casting of lots. And choosing to cast lots, they were following an ancient tradition in the Old Testament involving what's called the Urim and the Thummim. If you say that 20 times... Uh, that'll buy you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Well, when Old Testament priests could not, were unable to discern the will of God, what would they do? They would use the unum and the thummim. They would prayerfully cast lots, and the outcome would be determined by the providence of God. Now, this was not chance. God told them to do this, and he would do so with providence, as we learn from Proverbs 16.33. Here's a verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from the Lord. Right? God is determining this. Now, this is not a biblical legitimacy for your gambling habit. Okay? I'm meddling again, right? That's not what this is about at all. The point is that God is sovereign over things that seem even random to us. Amen? Our God is sovereign. And, of course, most commentators would then point out that the Holy Spirit had not come in fullness at this moment. Which is a good point. But the fact is, this is not the way that we're going to elect our teachers or our deacons in this church. We're not going to cast lots. 
Y'all up with me on that? It's just not going to happen. Okay? So, again, as we started our study, there are some things in Acts that are prescriptive and some that are descriptive. And this one is definitely descriptive of what took place in the book of Acts. Now, there, again, there are no apostles today. When John died on the Isle of Patmos, as he was writing the book of Revelation, that was the end. No more apostles. Yet we still have teachers, don't we? And we have ministers, and we have preachers, we have evangelists. Those are present with us today. So from the outset of the book of Acts, we're provided a glimpse of the life of the early church. Don't you all agree with Diedrich Bonhoeffer that this really was life together under the Word? I mean, is not that what, is that not what the church is supposed to be? You know, not our own desires. Hello, y'all awake? Not the church of me. Not what I can do, what I can get out of First Baptist Church if I join it. But how I can worship my God through it. Right? How that I can be a part of a body. Okay? I can be a part of a body. That means you have to be here to be a part of that body. How that we can be obedient together to listen to the Word of God. And so think about this. This is pristine purity in the early stages of the church. Obedience, unified together, praying together, searching the Word of God together, and submitting to godly leadership. You know what happened if you do that? God will grow His church. God will grow this church if we do those things. I promise you He will. You know why? Because God didn't send me here and tell me, you know what, Philip, you've got to do a good job building that church. Now, Jesus cleared me of that when he said, I will build my church. Amen? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this should be on the forefront of our minds all the time. Not your agenda. Not your personal preferences. Uh, not your agendizing. Let's find out what the Word of God says in obedience to the Word of God. And let's do so with prayer and unity, and following God the leadership so that God is glorified and the church is built up for the king. Hey, I don't care who you are. That's good preaching, right? No doubt about it. That's what we see right there in Acts chapter 1. Now tonight, I want to talk about five of those things in about 10 minutes and bring out some of those leadership qualities before we have our church council meeting so that you will understand how the church should operate. So shame on you if you don't come back tonight. All right? We're a body, right? No, folks, I don't want to make you feel guilty. If you don't want to ever come back, that's fine with me. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel empty. No comments? Right? Your church meets on Sunday night. It's getting a little hot in here, preacher. You ought not encourage people to come to church. Well, get over it. Right? Because we're a body. We're a body. You don't hurt my feelings, honestly. If you don't come on Sunday nights, you don't hurt my feelings. You know why? Because I'm going to preach the word to whoever shows up, right? But I don't want you to miss out on what God is doing in the life of our church. Amen? don't want you to miss out. Hey, the greatest things in life are not the things this world has to offer you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, just to look at this pristine, uh, Lord, community of faith in their obedience to you, Lord, uh, not seeking their own agendas. They're, Father, they're seeking your word. 
they're seeking direction. Father, they're in unity and they're in prevailing prayer. Even though the promise has already been made that you're going to send your Holy Spirit, they're still praying. Lord, in concert with your will, God, would you help our church be this kind of church? God, help me be the kind of leader that's going to have enough sense and wherewithal to stick to the Word, to listen to your voice through the Scriptures, your Holy Spirit working in the life of our church. God, would you send revival to this church? God, that's what we ask for. We know when we ask that there's a cost involved. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face. Lord, turn from the wicked ways. Lord, there's cost involved. Repent of their sin. Lord, we need to do this. And Father, I pray that as we preach through Acts, that Lord, we would, as a church, be swept up into revival. That's a constant state in our lives because we're seeking to obey you. Lord, uh, I pray you would speak to hearts during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.